Good morning. Please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. This morning's text will be from Ephesians chapter 1, and we will be reading the first 14 verses. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us before him in love. Oh, for the final Sorry, guys. <laughs> he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. What a privilege it is to come to your word. What a privilege it is, Father, to come before you and to receive from you a text like this one. Father, we think upon these great words of Paul that Jacob just read to us, and our hearts are overwhelmed with wonder and with glory because of all that you have done for us and all that you have made us to be in Christ Jesus. And so this morning, Father, we pray that you would help us to understand these words. And more than just understanding, Father, help us to trust these words. Help us to understand who we are in Christ Jesus this morning and help that truth to be transformative in our lives and for the sake of your glory. And so, Father, again, we pray that you would... Glorify yourself through your living and active word in the minds and hearts and lives of your people. May the words of my mouth and may the meditations of our heart be pleasing in your sight, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Last week, if you'll remember with me, we were in Ephesians, or Acts, excuse me, we were in Acts chapter 11. And we looked together in the end of that chapter at the great significance of how this group of Jewish Christians, this group of Jewish believers in Jesus from Cyprus and Cyrene, had concluded in their minds that the best thing for them to do now that they were believers in Jesus Christ was not to go somewhere where they could cloister themselves together just with other Christians and form sort of a Christian commune in order to be safe from the world and all of the spiritual darkness and paganism and idolatry and immorality that might pollute them out there, they concluded that the best thing for them to do was to go to the biggest, most worldly, most idolatrous, most immoral city that they could find, packed full of the most pagans that they could find, and bring the light of the gospel to bear on the darkness of the world in that place. And so they went to Antioch, and they did that, and it was with marvelous results, because the Holy Spirit caused the light of the gospel to shine brightly in the darkness of that place. And many came to Christ, and a church was formed, and a church thrived there for many, many years to the glory 
of Jesus Christ. And that leads us here today to the second point of emphasis that I wanted for us to focus on from that episode there in Acts chapter 11, as the Christians in Antioch did what they did by the power and grace of God. And that second point is this, what does it truly mean to be a Christian? You remember that it was in Antioch, Acts 11, verse 27, that the disciples of Jesus were first called Christians. And it's important for us to understand what that word means. And not just in the sense of the dictionary definition of that word in this world, but in the biblical sense, in biblical terms. What does it mean to be a Christian? The standard dictionary definition of the word Christian goes something like this, of or relating to Christianity. Now that's not very helpful, is it? You're not supposed to use the word itself in the definition of the word, because if you don't know what the word, it's just not a very helpful definition. Maybe this one's a little better. One who professes belief in the teachings of Christianity. That's a little better, but we're not there yet. Or this, one who identifies as a follower of Jesus. And that's closer to what probably Luke had in mind in the book of Acts chapter 11 when he said that the disciples of Jesus in Antioch first called themselves Christians. They were followers of Jesus. And there's truth there in a basic sense. A Christian is a follower of Jesus, but biblically, still, that doesn't go far enough, nearly. And so, as I suggested to you even last week, in the biblical sense, a Christian is not just someone who follows Jesus because there are plenty of people who do that and don't end up with Him. Judas was one of those, wasn't he? He followed Jesus for a time, but it turned out he wasn't truly what we would call a Christian at all. A Christian is not just someone who professes belief in Jesus and his teachings or who tries to live their lives like Jesus. There's lots and lots of people who do that who aren't actually Christians in the biblical sense of that term. So as I said just briefly last week, and this is what we're jumping into this week, biblically, a Christian isn't just someone who is like Jesus Christ. A Christian is someone who is in Jesus Christ. And today, I want to dig into what that means from various places in the New Testament, in God's Word. And I want to start here, in Ephesians, in this magisterial passage that Jake read for us a minute ago in Ephesians chapter 1. And I want you to notice in those verses, and hopefully you did notice as they were being read and as you were reading along, how many times the phrase, in Christ, or in Him, appears just in those opening 14 verses of Ephesians chapter 1. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Verse 4, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Verse 6, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved and the Beloved is Christ. Verse 7, in Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. Verse 9, the purposes of God are set forth in Christ. Verse 10, all things are united together in Christ. Verse 11, in Him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. And verse 13, In Him you also, 
when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Wow! Being in Christ is a big deal. We're lavished with every spiritual blessing that God has to lavish us with in Christ. We're chosen by God in Christ before the foundations of the world. We're blessed by God's glorious grace in Christ. We have redemption and forgiveness in Christ. God's eternal purposes are set forth and accomplished in Christ. God unites all things together in Christ. We have obtained an eternal inheritance in Christ and we are sealed by the Holy Spirit in Christ. Whatever it means to be in Christ, it's a pretty great thing since it means all of that. And so it's really important for us to come to understand what exactly it means to be in Christ. And that phrase is one that Paul doesn't just use here in the opening verses of the book of Ephesians. This phrase, in Christ, is one that he uses all over the place, all throughout the New Testament. In fact, just in Paul's letters, he uses this phrase over 220 times, just in his letters, talking about this reality of Christians, believers in Jesus, followers of Jesus, being in Him. For example, and this is one of the most potent ones, just listen, Romans chapter 6 and verse 11. You must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now see, he's not just talking about something theoretical, right? What he's talking about is the, the true Christian's actual nature and essential relationship to Jesus, and it's something spectacular. He see Paul in, in, in Romans 6 there, he's saying something much more than maybe we tend to think of when we think of what it means to be a Christian. Maybe what we tend to think of is, well, we've come to believe and accept that Jesus Christ died for our sins historically 2,000 years ago on a cross. And that three days after He died, He rose from the dead. And so now that we accept in our brains that that actually happened, what the meaning of the Christian life is, is trying our best to live our lives in such a way that we don't do the sinful things that landed Jesus on that cross in the first place. Right? No, no, no. Paul is saying something way deeper and far more profound than that. And this is so important to get because that that I just described, that is not all that the Christian life is. It is not even the the basic essence of what the Christian life is. It's not just trying in light of our understanding of Jesus' sacrifice to stop doing the kinds of things that He made the sacrifice for. Paul is saying that the essence of the believer's relationship to Jesus is such that we don't just believe in His death and resurrection and try now by faith in that truth to frame up our decisions and choices and lives accordingly. See, that actually is how every one of the world's False religions works. You latch on to some system of religious belief, and in whatever way that that system provides you with emotional inspiration or psychological motivation, maybe it's fear, maybe there's an aesthetic appeal, or maybe there's a promise of great mystical experiences or the allure of some hidden secret esoteric knowledge or wisdom or power. Or sometimes there's appreciation for some inspirational figure 
that's central to that religious system, or maybe even sometimes it's just good old-fashioned greed and the promise of great riches and pleasures in the afterlife if we do all the right things in this life. Whatever it is, the religions of the world provide some kind of personal inspiration or motivation to try and do things in life a certain way that will gain us some kind of reward. And Paul says that's not at all what it means to be a Christian. Paul says that true religion, true faith that is created and given by God as a gift to true believers in Jesus, through this God-given faith, we don't just accept and assent to the realities of Jesus and His death and resurrection, but that even more we become actually spiritually engrafted into Jesus Christ. Such that our relationship towards Him is not just being inspired by Him or influenced by Him, it is being spiritually united to Him. Now I know that's hard to contemplate. Here's an illustration, and an imperfect one at that, but it's an illustration that sometimes I like to use in order to explain this. It's like this. It's like standing out on the highway, hopefully not this one, but maybe a big open highway where there's no other cars or people around, and seeing a super fast performance sports car like a Ferrari or a Lamborghini or a a McLaren or a Bugatti. I think those things can go over 250 miles an hour, right? You're standing there and you hear something coming in the distance and then, whoa, this thing flies by you going more than 200 miles an hour, and you go, man, that's inspiring. I want, that's awesome power. That's awesome speed. I want to move that fast. And so, inspired by that awesome power and speed and motivated to go that fast yourself, you take a deep breath and summon all of your strength and then just start sprinting down the road. After the Bugatti. I mean, right, you're all laughing because it's ridiculous. It's a, it's, a, it's a silly picture, right? There's no way anyone could ever be inspired enough to get up to that speed on their own legs and feet. And if they tried, they might make it 100 yards before they just fell over in the dirt. But they're getting nowhere near that speed. But what if the super fast... Ferrari or Bugatti came roaring up and locked up its brakes and stopped right in front of you and the door opened and you got in, then you could go that speed if you were in the car. Not by, by, not by trying to be like the car, but by being in the car, right? Driven by its power. That's the difference between being motivated religiously by the world's religions or even by the tenets of the Christian religion as someone who's not really in Christ. You're impressed with Christ. And so, there He goes in infinite power and glory and you try to tear off down the road after Him. Sprinting in your own steam to try to match His power, to try to match His holiness. In all of the things that you're doing, ain't going to work. It's the difference between that and the true Christian life, which is being in Him. In Him. And what that means to be in Christ, first of all, it's not some kind of physical reality, right? That's where the illustration of being inside the sports car ends. In order to go 200 miles an hour like the sports car does, you've got to be physically inside of it. When the Bible talks about us being in Christ and Christ being in us, it doesn't mean physically. We don't have any kind of physical connection to His crucified or risen body. But we are spiritually indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God, who is the same divine essence as Jesus, the Son of God. 
And so to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit is to be united spiritually to God, to Christ, who is God as much as the person of the Holy Spirit is God. And the Bible also wants for us to grasp another sense in which we are in Christ. And this is the the primary sense. And that sense is, this is a big word, covenantally. Don't worry, we'll explain it. Think about a marriage between a husband and a wife. They're in a relationship with one another, but it's a completely and qualitatively unique kind of relationship, different from any other kind of relationship that exists between human beings in this world. Why? Because marriage, instituted by God, is a relationship of unique covenant union. Now, a covenant is just, think of like a treaty or a contract that is binding between two parties or two people. Covenants are like that, and they're built on promises between the two parties. Promises to adhere to the terms of the covenant for the mutual benefit of both parties. In marriage, it's the vows, right? And in a marriage between man and wife, this is a, a, an entirely unique kind of covenant because it's not just an agreement made upon the will of two people. Marriage is instituted by God. Marriage is a covenant relationship instituted and affected by God. Right, So the two, therefore, before God, come together in marriage and become one flesh. Those are Jesus' own words in the Gospel of Mark, right? Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. They are no longer two, they are one. And therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. In, in marriage, because it's God the one who's doing it, God's the one joining them together, they are no longer two people. It's no longer Steve and then Wendy, and we live in the same house and share all of the food and bank accounts and all of the things. It's not Steve here and Wendy here. It's now Steve and Wendy together as one Everything that is mine is hers. Everything that is hers is mine. Everything that I am is hers. Because God sewed us together. And of course, in in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul makes it clear that human marriage between a man and a wife was instituted by God primarily in order to be the best and most accurate and clearest picture in all of creation of God's relationship covenantally to His people, of Christ's relationship to His bride, which is the church. And so our relationship to Jesus, which the New Testament describes by this phrase, in Christ, in Him, or Him in us, it's a relationship where we are spiritually indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, in a relationship of covenantal union that is forged uniquely by God between us and the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And again, think of it just like you think of marriage on earth. In marriage on earth, when the two become one, everything that the two of them had, separately, individually, apart from each other, before they got married, now becomes the possession of them together as one in marriage. All that I have is not just for me. All that I do is not just about me. All that I am is not just me. Because through the institution and effective cause of God, I am one with my wife. And all that I do is about her and I. And all that I have and all that I am is for her and I in covenant oneness. And that is what it means to be in Christ. In Christ, all that He is, all that He does, and all that He has 
becomes ours in Him. In such a complete way that everything that we are is who and what we are in Him. It's our entire identity. Which means that whatever used to be our identity is no more. Abuse you suffered in the past, the scars and the marks that it left, describe you but don't define you. Sin you've committed in your life and the consequences that remain upon you describes you but does not define you. Whatever good things you think you've done in this life, whatever achievements, whatever accomplishments, whatever purposes you've managed may describe something about you, but they do not define you. Your definition is Christ Jesus. It's no longer I who live. Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the one who loved me and gave himself up for me. Our lives are hidden with Christ in God. That is the definition of you now. To be in Christ means that everything He's done, His righteous, holy life, His sacrificial death on the cross, His resurrection from the dead, His ascension into heaven, His eternal enthronement at the right hand of the Father, His intercession every single minute of every single day as He sits upon that throne, all of it defines everything about us if we are in Him. Being in Christ, being united to Christ, means, according to Paul in Romans 6, being united to His death. You must consider yourself to be what you are in Christ, and that is dead to sin. That's what we are. We're not just grateful that Jesus died for us 2,000 years ago. We're not just grateful, we are dead ourselves to sin in Christ. We're not just astounded that Jesus conquered death and actually rose from the grave. We are united to His resurrection in Him. Right? 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is what? In Christ. There it is. If anyone is in Christ, he is a what? A a person with great religious inspiration and motivation and a great example to follow? No, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. If anyone is in Christ, he, she is a crucified, resurrected, holy, new creation, dead to self and alive to Christ. See, because the Christian's relationship to Jesus is such that more than just believing in his death and resurrection, through faith, we are united to him and united to his death and resurrection so that we participate in it. His death becomes the death of our old, selfish, sinful, fleshly self. His resurrection becomes the resurrection of a new nature. Not a refurb, a wholly new creation in Him. In Christ, we are united to His sinless, holy, righteous life. And you look at yourself and you say, I sin every day, I blow it every day, I was mean to my wife, I was mean to my kids. I thought impure thoughts. I said inappropriate things. I did things that were wrong. I had bad attitudes. You are in Christ. Those things describe you. They no longer define you. You must look to the One in whom your life is now hidden in God. You are united to His righteous life. And in that way, you are justified because His righteousness is accounted to you. Just like your sin, all of your sin was accounted to Him on the cross. And so when God looks upon you, He says, I don't condemn you. I accept you. 
as fully righteous by the merits of my own son's righteousness, which is accounted to you. And I forgive you for every single thing you've done without you having to suffer the punishment of my wrath at all because I poured it all out on my son. Well, why? He was innocent. He didn't do anything wrong. Your sin was accounted to him. All of it. It's not some legal fiction. It's the brilliant, omniscient accounting of the righteous and merciful God who accounts your sin to Him and His righteousness to you so that in Him you're forgiven and in Him you're justified and in Him you're accepted. And since we're united to His holy and righteous life, being in Christ means that He is living in us and He is living through us now, sanctifying these new lives that He has raised with Himself, growing us in holiness and maturity and righteousness. Righteousness is not going to, your own attempts at righteousness are not going to get you in Christ. But being in Christ is going to render righteousness in your life. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And He's living in me by strengthening me to the glory of God. That's what the Christian life is. It's union with Jesus. It's being in Jesus. It's His glorious life being in us, forging by the power of God our lives now in conformity with His own image. So in Christ, we are united to all that He is. We're united to His death. We're united to His resurrection. We're united to His ascension even in heaven. Everything that He's done applies to us in Him. Such that He is with us in all of the fullness of investiture when He ascended into heaven that He was given. All of that heavenly and and divine power and authority, He's with us and is ours in Him as we face whatever trials we face and endure whatever hardships that there are in this world. All authority in heaven and on earth has been granted to me. And behold, I am what? I am with you always, he says. Because we are in him and he is in us even to the end of the age. Matthew chapter 28, that's the promise of Christ. In Christ we are united to his enthronement at the right hand of God the Father, so that every moment of our Christian lives that we struggle against sin and temptation and fleshly desire is a moment that we are struggling in Christ, with Christ, at the foot of His heavenly throne, which is a throne of grace, with every ounce of His divine power available to us in Him. Every sensation of guilt that we experience as we realize that we've sinned, as we realize our failures and our weaknesses and our shortcomings is experienced in Him, is experienced there where He sits eternally on His gracious throne interceding for us, mercifully swatting away every accusation that the evil one might try to level against us. Well, look, he sinned again. He's not worthy and you feel it. You feel the unworthiness. But you feel that and you experience that in Christ and he swats it in a way and he says, no, no, I died for that sin. I washed it with my blood and I've imputed my righteousness to them. My grace is sufficient for all of their sin. Every single time. Every single minute that we lack assurance because we look at our sin and we say, could Jesus have really died for for this, for me? Is a minute spent at the foot of that merciful throne where Jesus looks down upon us with tender, gentle, divine patience and love and says, my child, it's okay. You've been washed. You've been cleansed. You've been forgiven. You've been justified. You've been glorified in me and my perfect love casts out all of the fear. I don't condemn you. So see that the question in any and every aspect of our lives as Christians, 
our lives in Him, where it's no longer we who are living, but Him who is living in us. The question when we're struggling with temptation is not, am I strong enough to resist it? Am I sufficiently motivated by what Jesus did for me? Do I feel good enough about what Jesus did for me to resist this temptation? It's not, that's not the question. The question is not, am I strong enough to resist it? The question is, am I in Christ strong enough? It's, is He strong enough? Does He have the strength to resist this temptation? And am I in Him? Therefore, I have that strength. It's, is Christ, who is in me, strong enough to resist temptation? The question when we're struggling with fear is not, will I be overcome? Will I be defeated? Will I be destroyed? Will I be undone? It's, will Christ ever be defeated? Will Christ, who is living in me, be destroyed? Now the question in Christ is, Will I, can I, in Christ, is it even possible for me to be overcome? (laughs) Not if I'm in Christ. It's easy to see the difference, right? There is no power that can defeat Jesus. There is no sin that weighs more in the scales of God's justice than the blood of Jesus, than His all-sufficient, everlasting mercy and grace and love. Is there any accusation of guilt that can be pressed against us from anyone that Jesus is unable to answer as He makes intercession for us? Is there any problem that's so big, that's so great that Jesus isn't able to handle it? Is there any circumstance? Is there any trial? Is there any hardship? Is there any sorrow or suffering that Jesus isn't sufficient for, that He can't deal with? Is there any storm that He can't calm? Is there any raging sea that He can't command? Is there any deep water that He can't cross? Of course not. The disciples in the boat on the Sea of Galilee were afraid. And Jesus rebuked them as having little faith because Jesus was in the boat with them and it is much better to be in Christ even than to be in the boat with Christ. You have it far better in the storms of life than than even those disciples did in the boat with Jesus on the Sea of Galilee. So see if we're in Him, if it's no longer we who live, but Him who lives in us, There's none of it out there that can overwhelm us. Not in Christ. Thus says the Lord, Isaiah 43, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, and you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be consumed. The flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel. I am your Savior. And we are in Him. And He is in us through faith. It's so critical, it's so crucial to understand this great reality of our union with Jesus, of of the reality of this awesome truth of being engrafted into Him and its implications of being in Him. You see how massively significant this is for every aspect of our lives in Him. With that understanding, think again about everything that Paul says here in Ephesians chapter 1. All of this is real, all of this is true, For everyone who is in Christ Jesus, we are lavished with every spiritual blessing in Christ. All that He is, all that He does, all that He has is ours in Him. It's like being the most impoverished person on the face of the planet, the most malnourished, the most desperately sick person. And He comes and He takes you for His own, His bride, and welcomes you into His palace where there is 
every richness under heaven. All of the wealth. There is every kind of food and drink you can imagine. There is every kind of medicine and it is all yours to avail yourself of. And you cannot be poor anymore. And you cannot be sick anymore. And you cannot be hungry anymore. You cannot be weak anymore because you are in Him. We are lavished with every spiritual blessing in Christ. We are the bride of Christ through faith in Him. We have full access to all of the infinite wealth of every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Every ounce of God's goodness and faithfulness and loving kindness and grace and power is is ours in Him. And we're chosen by God in Christ before the foundation of the world. That means that the way God sees us, that the way God considers us, evaluates us, whether or not He'll accept us, has been established before the foundation of the world in Christ, not in us. Before we even existed, our being chosen by God for everlasting redemption hung entirely not on what we would or would not do. It hung entirely on Christ, on who He is and on what He would do. And on our being wed to Him through faith alone before we even ever existed. Amazing. And we have redemption and forgiveness in Christ. God's purchase of us out of the desperate bondage of sin and death and and Satan was made real, was made effective for us, not because of what we did or didn't do, but because of our connection, because of our union to Him, to Jesus, who did it all, who shed His blood. His blood is the only basis of our forgiveness. His righteousness is the only basis of our justification. There's no way that following in His footsteps and running after Him like a Ferrari going 200 down the road, you'll ever catch up and be holy like He's holy and be good enough for God to say, I accept you never in a million, billion, trillion years. But in Christ, God says, you're mine. I accept you. I don't condemn you. And only in Christ alone. His life is the only basis of our redemption. Without being in Him, we're laying in the dirt in the tire tracks of that Ferrari. We're in our sins and we are dead eternally. And all of God's eternal purposes are set forth in Christ. Our entire destiny, the whole meaning of our existence, the whole definition of our lives and our being is determined by Him, by Christ, by being in Him. Is He glorious? Then your existence is glorious in Him. Or are you going to sit around complaining about all the circumstances of your life and feeling sorry for yourself and saying, oh, everything's bad and horrible and terrible all the time? Because you're in this world. I know, it's hard in this world. I struggle too. I get headaches from it sometimes. It's hard in this world. But your definition, your destiny, your identity is not first and foremost in this world. Your identity is in Christ. Let that outweigh all of the troubles of this world. And the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. And all of the troubles and trials of this world will come to seem like the momentary light afflictions that they actually are in comparison with the glory of the Christ in whom we live. All of God's eternal purposes are set forth in Christ. We have obtained an eternal inheritance in Christ. Just go home today and meditate just on that for the rest of the day. Everything that Jesus has, everything that Jesus owns, everything that Jesus is the sovereign Lord of, which is every single thing in the cosmos, is your inheritance in Him. Is what your whole hope is anchored to in Him. Don't let it be anchored more to the things of this world than to the inheritance that is yours in Him. And in Him, Ephesians 1.13, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit of God. That means secured forever by the will, by the power 
of the Most High, Almighty God, not because of anything we could do, but because we are in Him who has done everything and it cannot be undone because He did it. And none can stay His hand. This reality is the whole basis also of everything that Paul says in the great chapter of Romans chapter of Romans 8. Don't, don't turn there. And I'm, trust me, I'm not going to unpack it too much, but just, just run through Romans 8 with me real fast as a wind sprint and realize all of the great, rich, powerful, life-transforming and defining blessings there are in Christ Jesus that are just jam-packed into that one single chapter. There is therefore now no condemnation. I don't care what you've done There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal body through his spirit which dwells in you. In Christ, you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall into fear in this world, but you have received a spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba, Father, as the sons of God. In Christ we are children of God and if children we are heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ. In Christ the Holy Spirit helps us in our weaknesses, interceding for us with groanings that are too deep for words. In Christ we are predestined and called and justified and glorified. In Christ if God is for us, who can be against us? In Christ we say amen to the great reality that no one can bring any charge against us as God's elect in Him. It is God who justifies, so who can condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised and who is at the right hand of God and who indeed is interceding for us. In Christ, no one and nothing can separate us from the love of the Father. In Christ, we are, in fact, more than conquerors. In Christ, we draw near to the throne and rejoice to say, I am sure, I am convinced, I am positive that nothing, neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will ever be able to separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus my Lord. Amen? Amen. We are united to Him. We are united to Him in all of His divine holiness and glory and power and victory and dominion and authority. John Murray, great systematic theologian of Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia, said that this doctrine, this teaching of Paul in the Bible, is the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation in all of the Christian life. If you don't understand this, you don't know what it means to be a Christian. And you may just be chasing after Ferraris all your life. John Calvin said this is the central foundational basis for both our justification and our sanctification. You can't have anything if you don't know that you're in Christ. All that Jesus gloriously is, all that He has marvelously done, His perfect spotless life, His death, His resurrection, His ascension, His enthronement, that is your life, Christian. Your life is in Him. And it's knowing that, and it's trusting that, and it's resting in this reality of what you are in Him that fuels and drives and defines our lives in Him. It's communing with Him with Christ who is our life, that opens up the floodgates of His life in and through us. This is what we've got to recognize. This is what we've got to embrace. You're not in Adam anymore. You're not dead in trespasses and sins anymore. You're a new creation. You're in Christ. You're alive in Him. And you have to live according to the reality of what you are. And what God's Word exhorts us to understand is that the only way to do that is to walk by faith and not by sight. And this is hard because 
If you really understand what the difference is, you'll recognize pretty quickly how often you walk by sight. While we still live in this world that is filled with all of the things that we see with our physical eyes and that we hear with our ears and that we touch and smell and taste, while we still live in this world that's filled with all of these things, we have to stop living primarily according to those five physical senses and start living by faith, which is the assurance of things that are unseen, as Joe preached to us two weeks ago. Because see, it was when we were spiritually dead, it was when we were in our sins, it was when we, when we were in Adam, that that was the only way we could live, by, by living according primarily to our five physical senses. Those were the only senses that were operative in our lives. And so they took it all in. And then our fallen, sinful minds processed all of the data that our five senses took in and interpreted it, but, but, but twisted it according to our fallen, sinful, self-willed, foolish, darkened hearts. But now, see, now that we're in Christ, we, we've got to flip it around. We've got to walk by faith first and not by sight. Faith by which we are united to Christ has to be the predominant sense through which we see and understand and interpret this world and our lives in it and everything that's happening all around us. Or else we'll never know what it all means. Now, I want you to flip with me over to the book of Colossians because we're coming to the end of our time and I want to close with this. Flip over to Colossians chapter 3 and just look at the first two verses of Colossians 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. And set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. You see what he's saying? Don't walk by sight, walk by faith. In the unseen things that are above. Because you are a new creation in Christ, because you are united to Him, because your life is now defined by His life, His desires, His righteousness, His will, His holiness and glory is what defines you now. You've got to set your mind on those realities, first and foremost, of who He is and of who you are in Him, if you want to have any hope of living in this world in a way that is characterized by peace and hope and love and joy. If you keep walking by sight, you'll only feel frustrated and defeated and bitter. To seek the things that are above, like Paul says here in Colossians 3, means to make the realities of heaven, to make the realities of God's existence and nature as He has revealed it in His Word, the the holiness and sovereignty of God, the mercy of God and all that He is and all that He's done for us in Christ Jesus. It means means to to contemplate everything that He's made us to be in Christ Jesus. It, It means to make all of those realities our primary focus for all of our life and not just a focus for for part of our life that comes to church on Sunday morning. What Paul means is to, to desire and to strive for the things that are above in every part of our lives. Center your interests on Christ and then let every other interest fall into its rightful place after that. Allow all of your attitudes, all of your ambitions, allow your whole outlook on life to be molded and defined by your relationship to Jesus. Paul means that your allegiance to Him has to take precedence over any other allegiance to self or anything in this world. That's what it means to seek the things that are above. And the the verb that Paul uses there to seek is in the present active imperative tense which just means this, it, just, it doesn't just mean seek, it means keep on seeking. Actively, continuously. 
urgently, not just on Sunday morning between 10.30 and 12.30. It means all the time. Frame your perspective, center your interests, conform your attitudes and ambitions and your whole outlook. Let every activity and pursuit in your life fall in submission to Christ and His glory. Let every response to every circumstance be shaped by the reality of Christ who is sovereign over it all and of your life in Him. Let every purpose and every goal and its fulfillment Let all of it be happening all the time, centered on Christ. J.B. Lightfoot says, you must not only seek heaven, you must think heaven. Keep on setting your minds on the things that are above, is, is what Paul means there. Again, not just on Sunday mornings, not just during Bible study time or family devotion time or, or your own personal time of devotion and prayer, all the time. All the time, think heaven, think glory, think Christ. Frame your desires and ambitions around Him and the heavenly realities of God's sovereign majesty, Christ's risen glory, His merciful, all-sufficient, redeeming work, your life in Him, and you will be able to face down every temptation, and you will be able to endure every trial, and you will be able to rejoice through every failure and every weakness because your life is hidden with Christ in God. When you're tempted, set your mind on the things that are above, on Jesus who is holy and pure, on the one who is pierced and crushed and who bled and who died for your sin. Set your mind on the one who has so graciously forgiven and justified you and made you a new creation in himself and and made your body to be a temple of the Holy Spirit. And you will then say, I don't want to defile myself with the, the things of this world. I want to glorify Christ who is and has done all of that and made me that in him. When you're weighed down with guilt because you have blown it, when, not if, When you're weighed down by shame, when you're weighed down by despair, set your mind on the things that are above. Draw near to the throne of grace. Fix your eyes on Jesus who is risen in eternal victory over every speck of your sin. And who sits there interceding and says to you, I don't condemn you. When you're afraid, set your mind on His perfect love because it casts out all fear. Draw near to Him. Commune with the sovereign God of the universe and let Him convince you that He's got it under control. Find rest. Find shelter. Find refuge in the One who commands the winds and the waves and the storms of your life for a purpose. When you're weak, rest in the sovereign strength of Christ who is in you and with you. When you need wisdom, draw near. Fix your mind on the awesome realities of His holiness and His majesty and and fill your mind with the wisdom of His Word and be filled with the fear of the Lord which is the beginning of all wisdom. When things are good. When the lines have all fallen in pleasant places for you. Draw near. Set your mind on the great realities of God's fatherly kindness and care and love and give praise to Him from whom all blessings flow. See, in all ways, in every circumstance, through every trial, in the face of every temptation, since you have been raised with Christ, since your life is in fact hid with Christ in God, since it is Christ in you that is your hope of glory, fix your mind all the time on what is ultimately real and on the reality of your union with Jesus because that's the only way that every other reality in your life makes any sense at all. Otherwise, it's all just nonsense. So let's pray together today. And then let's sing His praises together as we come to receive grace at the table. Our Father and our God, we desperately need Your help to understand these things that Your Scriptures, Your Word so clearly and forcefully lays forth for us. And not just to understand them conceptually, God, but to accept by faith that this is what we are. 
that our lives are hidden with Christ in you, that our lives are not our own, that it is no longer we who live, that it is Christ who lives in us, that all that he is, that all that he does, that all that he has is ours in him. Oh, Father, help us know every single day what that means. Help us every single day drink it deeply from your word. Help us every single day to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus and to think upon all of the things, to set our minds continually upon all the things that are true and real in the heavenly places where Christ sits at your right hand. And so, Father, may we truly say that the meaning of life, that the meaning of what it is to be a Christian is to be in Christ alone. Father, we love you, we praise you, and we give you thanks in his name. Amen. Amen. All right, page five of your bulletins. Let's stand together, and I want us to sing. I don't care if your voice cracks when you tend to yell and sing loud at the top of your lungs. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord this morning and sing his praises together in Christ alone.